Between the Lines with Virtual Academy. We all have a story to tell. This is Between the Lines with Virtual Academy, podcast going beyond the bads to allow members of law enforcement, public safety, and first response place to tell their stories and talk about the cases that have impacted their lives. Hello and welcome inside episode 20 of the podcast. I'm your co-host, Brent Henson. In musical terms, I'm kind of like the uh, opening band for the headliner. Let me introduce you to the headliner, Mr. Michael Warren, our host. How are you, sir? Buddy, I'm good. It's good to be back here with you. I think in musical terms, you would be what, like a big classic rock band. Yeah, definitely classic, you know, based upon the age. It's elevator music at this point, just to be honest <laughs> with you. But uh, speaking of music, man, I, I saw that you got a good musical find here recently, picked up some fat boys. I have a thing where I go out on the weekends and I, I, I dig through old vinyls and try to find things for my youth. And I ran across uh, some vintage gold. I got uh, three fat boy records. And I know that may sound odd, but I was genuinely excited about it. To set the tone for today uh before we started recording i went and listened to wipe out uh, oh. get my mind in the right place nice you're getting all pumped up and ready i'm pumped up and ready but i was pumped up and ready because i'm really excited about our guest today so what can you tell us about him well today's guest is an accomplished fbi senior executive with extensive experience resolving complex security issues in cases of national and international importance. He has over 24 years as an FBI special agent, protecting vital assets, preparing for and leading critical incident responses and supervising sensitive investigations. He's also served as an operator and supervisor on the Department of Justice's National Counterterrorism Unit and the elite FBI hostage rescue team. We'll most definitely get into more of that today, I'm sure. It's a true privilege for us to welcome in our guest today, Mr. Kyle Vowinkle. How are you, sir? I'm doing terrific. And also want to give a shout out. I'm, I'm a Fat Boys fan as well with their collaboration with the Beach <laughs> nice. Boys there in Wipeout. I uh, listen to myself numerous times. Bringing it all together. That's great. I can already tell today's going to be a great episode. That video, I mean, it took me right back to you know high school, college, that, that time period right there. And no, for, for our young listeners, it wasn't in black and white. It was in color, <laughs> but it was a while ago. I like it. We, we start with a little levity uh, to start off with things. <laughs> Absolutely. But that's some serious music right there, though. I mean, that's classic, true classic. Yeah. But uh, Kyle, we really appreciate you being here today. I'm excited. I've been doing my research as much as possible about some of the incidents we're going to talk about today and about you. So let's go ahead and get started. You had an interesting college that you attended. Uh, I went to the United States Military Academy, West Point. Actually only applied to that one college, much to the dismay of my parents. (laughs) My brother, he's two and a half years older, uh, so he was a senior in high school. I was a uh, you know ninth grade, and he applied and got into West Point. And we went and visited him, you know, come my tenth grade year in high school. And I decided then and there, wow, these uniforms are really kind of cool. The place is very unique on the Hudson. They're very picturesque, and I remember seeing a history poster on the wall when we toured the grounds. It said, much of the history we teach was made by the people we taught. Wow. And the uh, you know impact that West Point graduates have had upon winning the nation's wars is truly remarkable. And that service to country, you know, ethos of duty, honor country very much appealed to me. So uh, thankfully, I applied, received a congressional nomination from Bill Lowry, our local representative, and uh, lucky enough to get in, graduated the class of 1993. That says a lot about your maturity level, because when I was in 10th grade, I was not, (laughs) my headspace was not there at all, thinking about that forward. 
Yeah, I, I was a class clown, believe it or not. I was elected and I was the class clown of my high school in, in San Diego. So growing up, you know, San Diego is practically the home of the Beach Boys and almost laissez-faire culture and enjoying life and being outdoors, I, I loved. So the West Point, that rigid discipline was definitely not an immediate fit for me. And I'm kind of a contrarian at times and independent thinker. And I remember when my parent-teacher conference with my physics teacher told my mother and I during the conference, I don't see Kyle succeeding at West Point. He, <laughs> he lacks the discipline. And he was really right, but it, it inspired me and encouraged me to, to prove him wrong. I've always kind of risen to challenges and refused to uh, quit when doing the right thing for the right reason. Very nice. But but you did make it through West Point, though, didn't you? I did. Actually, I'll just say the first semester was quite a struggle. I never really studied hard in high school, not to knock my high school, but I, I really was not that smart, but I really wasn't academically challenged. And at West Point, first semester, I was academically crushed. Uh, I had a D, a D going into the calculus. Example of my high school lack of maturity. I didn't take physics. Excuse me, I didn't take calculus in high school. Figuring I'll just I'll learn it all at West Point. And then I was behind the power curve. I had a D going in. And if you fail a class at West Point, you're at risk of being kicked out. So I was very nervous that first semester, really buckled down and studied every night. Like some guys are smart enough not even to study most nights. I was definitely not in that category. So I had to work very hard to graduate. And then I was very proud that each semester I got better and better. And you're rated in academics, military, and physical. Those are your three different criteria. And at the end, I was very proud to graduate in the top 20% of the class. So after almost failing first semester to graduate in you know, cum laude, well, for me, it was a big deal. That's fantastic. And you know what? You bring up an interesting point before we get into things. I think too much emphasis is put on natural talent and, and natural intelligence and too little credit is given to the people that grind it out, that put the work in and succeed because they decided they were going to succeed. Absolutely. Abraham Lincoln, right? One of my you know, role models. And what did he 17 times, I think? applied for, tried to get elected office and kept not being successful, right? He failed, but he did not give up, right? He kept at it and then he succeeded. And I think one of the greatest presidents in our history. Yeah. Thank goodness he did keep trying because who knows how things right. would have ended up if he hadn't. You graduate from West Point and you receive your commission. What kind of job did they give you? Depending on your class rank, it depends on the branch you can choose. Actually at West Point, I met a fellow cadet whose dad was an FBI agent and there took us all to like a FBI firearms range for one like free Saturday. A few months later, he took us to Wall Kill, New York, which is previously the home of the FBI Tactical Emergency Vehicle Operation Course, TVOC. So we got to drive cars. And there at West Point, I was comparing like how the FBI runs ranges and training with how the Army runs ranges and training, right? And this is from a 19-year-old perspective and understandably, the military is very rigid, right, with how they run things because you have an 18-year-old maybe, you know, fresh in boot camp compared to the FBI, where you have someone with their degree who's already been a professional in another field. So you have a late 20s or early 30s individual, right? Much different maturity level. But I just I saw the way that they conducted training. The FBI appealed to me. So then at West Point, I actually joined. There was a law enforcement tactics club. And I decided to go try to be an FBI agent while still in the Army, meaning I chose military police as my branch because I hope that law enforcement experience in the Army would help me be a, more competitive as an FBI agent. And did I see that you're Ranger qualified? I am. I went to Airborne and Ranger School, wanted to try to do the most difficult training possible. Uh, and Ranger School was exceedingly difficult. Uh, 72 days, grueling days. And I still remember we had 371 who started and only 71 graduated straight through. So it's a 19% success rate. And th remember, these are all 
soldiers who've trained, they understand the rigors of ranger school, and yet 81%, you know, we're not successful. I consider myself very lucky, right? I didn't get hurt. It's very easy to get hurt at ranger school. You twist an ankle or bang up a knee, you're going to have to be recycled. Thankfully, yeah, I was able to get straight through, but that was an extreme test of your individual perseverance, determination, leadership skills, right? As an officer, you're given patrols to lead. You have to be successful in patrols. And I certainly failed a patrol or two, but also thankfully I, I passed more than I failed. And uh, Ranger School was a ball buster, excuse my language. You and I were talking and, and talking about what a good feeling it is to be a part of a team, but not just any team, but but a team that is dedicated, that has a, has a mission in mind and, and they have purpose. What an impact that can make. And Ranger School probably was one of those places where you realized how important the team was. Oh, absolutely. That, that esprit de corps that desire to be a part of something bigger than yourself and to recognize that you are just a small cog in the wheel, even in a big army in the Rangers or in the FBI, like, but you play a small part and the team can succeed or fail based off that one small individual's part. So I, I relished that being part of the team. And as I mentioned to you, it's, that's the tough part now, right? For 33 years, I've proudly served our government and our nation. And now I'm in that second chapter of life and it's my, my team is no longer there. I'm not with my team. So it's definitely an, an adjustment. Although I still hopefully in these post-Bureau years, my plan is to highlight and recognize those in law enforcement, those who are protecting us each and every day. Now that I'm on the other side, I want to show the respect and admiration for those who are putting their lives on the line to protect me and my family. Those that are on this side of retirement are often able to serve as the mouthpiece and say things that perhaps some of the ones who are still serving can't say. Exactly. You, you get out of the Army, and uh, I'm going to assume that you applied for the FBI and you were successful in that application. I, I was. I'll, I'll tell you, the first time I applied, I was class of 93, as I said, and the Army in 1996 offered an early out for the first, I don't know, 10 or 15% of the officers because it's during a drawdown, you know, there's no global conflicts. So I applied for that, but I didn't make the cut. And I even told them, hey, I've been a, I had applied for the bureau. I'd been accepted by FBI, right? They had given me a class date. And the Army said, sorry, you cannot leave. You owe us five years active duty and three years reserve duty. So suck it up, Kyle. Uh, <laughs> so I, I actually tried at three to get out of the Army. Uh, was not successful. Hey, that's fine. I, I had signed the dotted line. I, I was okay with that. Uh, so I continued the five years and, and then came straight. My last day in the Army was February 28th and March 1st, 98 was my first day as an FBI agent. The application and process to be an FBI agent does take about a year, year and a half. You know, they, they do a thorough background investigation, series of interviews, tests, polygraph, et cetera. And then you served in a variety of positions and a variety of places, but you ended up in L.A. You ended up on a SWAT team with one of our former guests. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, so being a Southern California native, born and raised in San Diego, I wanted to go back to the uh, the West Coast and was lucky enough that Quantico, week six in new agent training, you submit your wish list. And we always said it's, uh, it's kind of like a blind monkey throwing a dart at the wall for where you actually get. Thankfully, my monkey hit LA, which was my in my top 10. So I was happy to go back to LA. And then in L.A., the uh, SWAT team commander, the supervisor in charge of the team, a guy named Doug Kane. He was a former HRT operator, hostage rescue team, team leader operator. And then it came back to L.A. And I remember I went into his office. I had, had maybe 11 and a half months in L.A. at the time. And he had a rule. You have to have 12 months in the office before you can try for SWAT. I went in and met with him, you know, talked about my Army background, said, hey, would you mind considering, you know, waiving the two weeks for me so I could try out? And he said, 
Kyle, I'll tell you what, I'll see you in a year. <laughs> I'll take that as a no. <laughs> yeah, my, my background meant nothing to him. And again, I respect that, right? He had his standard. I did not meet the standard. So he told me to come back, and I, and I did. Mike Kelly was on the team prior to me. He was a former banker, and he was well-respected. Again, very athletic, uh, good shooter. I looked up to him, and as well as other guys on the, that L.A. team, and knew that was a team that I wanted to be a part of, as we were referring to before. I, they did some great work there in Southern California doing the high-risk arrests for the LA office. They worked with the other partner agencies there, the uh, SEB, LAPD, D-Platoon, you know, their SWAT unit. And they just were a professional entity, and I wanted to be a part of that team. So it was a great combination. I, I tried out, and it was, a, it was a tough tryout process as well for LA SWAT. And thankfully made it with four other individuals. And the, the five of us, we still maintain contact to this day. And three of those five came to my retirement ceremony, flew all the way across the country. So those bonds that I formed in L.A. SWAT, you know, still are alive to this day. And you know, Mike Kelly is one of those guys I truly enjoyed working with. And he was such a great humanitarian as well. I'll talk about Mike for a second. He received the, uh, I believe it was the William H. Webster Humanitarian Award for he and his wife's work helping out, uh, I want to say it's Central or South American countries. What a great honor, right? Only one person in the FBI a year receives that. And he received it. So I did ask him the next year if I could get a copy of his application process, I was going to put myself in for the award, <laughs> but he wouldn't give it to me. And he, cause he didn't put himself in, of course, and nor would I put myself in. I'm just kidding. But he was such a phenomenal individual. Yeah, And Mike's the one that actually put us in contact with you. And uh, we're thankful for him for that. He is on uh, episode seven with uh, Rob Chadwick. So uh, we, we thank Mike for, uh, for putting us in contact with you. Yeah. And I did listen to episode seven to listen to, to Mike and Rob. I thought that was a good show they did with you isn't it kind of um kind of fitting that we didn't know anything about that about mike until another episode because the people who do that kind of work they're not in it for the recognition they, they do it because it's a good thing to do and so uh mike if you're out there listening we hope you are fantastic dude and i will say this because i try to look up information about guests before they come on you guys in the fbi you have a, uh, a very low online presence. You do a good job of keeping yourself online because it's hard to find things about you guys on the internet. No, thanks. Actually, I, I take pride in that. I, I finally joined LinkedIn, my first kind of social media presence, maybe a year and a half ago, only because I knew I was transitioning out at some point. Because your average agent, right, I would like to think myself and Mike fall in that category, right? We, we shun publicity. We do not want individual recognition. We want to be apolitical. We don't want to be in the news or, or spotlight. We have a job to do and we're, we're part of the team and the, the team is what matters. The team takes precedence over everything. It's so refreshing when we get that. You, you served in an LA SWAT team, but then you make the decision that there's another team that you want to be a part of. What team was that that you wanted to be a part of? So that was the, the hostage rescue team. I had heard about them at West Point being a you know national level asset. The hostage rescue team is the Department of Justice's right primary counterterrorism team, and it's a full-time tactical team. As good as LA was and as good as the other enhanced FBI SWAT teams are, those individuals on the team are also FBI case agents, right? They're also investigators. So it's a, it's a balance. They do maybe a third of their time on SWAT and maybe two-thirds case time, and, and that changes you know week to week depending on the, the mission. And I wanted to do it full-time. I enjoyed that tactical world so much. Mike Kelly was also interested in trying to for HRT and a, and a third friend of ours uh, named John. The three of us decided, hey, let's try out and prepare together for HRT. So we spent about almost a year physically preparing. We were running all the time. They were both better runners than me. I hated that. I, I was always trying to catch up with them. <laughs> and we'd go, we do pool workouts. We do the stair workouts because, you know, one of the events was like 
climbing eight flights of stairs with a 35 pound ram and a 50 pound vest so you got 85 extra pounds you got to go upstairs eight flights in under a minute one singular test out of like 40 tests throughout selection demonstrates how truly physically demanding that course is and and mike john and i prepared for it and they both did very well they were they were picked up that first year uh, they tried out well you, you said they but you didn't say you uh, i was not that was crushing so the first selection i uh, was not chosen which is very difficult especially right my two friends had made it and hrt will give you an invitation to come back if they like you if there's any question or any doubt mindset back then was hey have the individual come back and so they might be back and i came back that next year and, and made it but that was a tough year that was a very tough year because now you know exactly what's coming for that two-week grueling two weeks because you're pushed i compare it to like a month of ranger school condensed to two weeks that hrt selection the sleep deprivation which is challenging but you're constantly evaluated and not just on those physical uh exertions right you have to pass those physical exertions but your your judgment is evaluated on your arrest scenarios your your shoot no shoot your compatibility with others right are you able to be in a foxhole with a guy for days or weeks or deployed overseas for months on end with an individual that they want to be with you. So compatibility is a key factor uh, as well. So they need, you know, people who are capable of solving problems. It's, it's almost a capacity test, right? Given limited information, how do you solve this problem and how do you work with others to solve the problem? So yeah, selection was very tough. And yeah, thankfully, the second time uh, I slipped through the cracks and was picked up. Well, you don't sound like the type of guy that, that gives up. You have a goal in mind that you want to achieve, but was there any moment that a thought goes in your head where you're like, oh, I, I don't want to do this again. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It, it took me a, a good probably two and a half, three months to decide to go back a second time. I, I knew how hard that preparation was, right? It took a year. I had two sons at that time. And for example, I was spending so much time working out and shooting. I, I shot a lot then. I was shooting competitively in IDPA and IPSC. And like every weekend, I was either on the range or hiking with my son my older son, my backpack. So I had very little family time. So devoting that much time again to preparing for selection, I knew it was going to be a drain uh, on the family. And besides all the physical, almost damage it causes to your body, uh, bury yourself. That, that that was very hard. So I, it was whether or not I was going to push myself again. And I remember I had a conversation with my, this is assistant special agent charge in LA. And he summed it up like this. So you, you only go around, merry-go-round of life once. And you tried to grab the brass ring, Kyle, for your goal. And, and you missed the first time. Are you going to regret a second time not grabbing that brass rung and going for it? At the end of the day, I would have regretted it. I, I would not have not wanted to try out a second time. And so that was really find those words that pushed me to make the decision to, to do it a second time. You know, you, you make it a second time. And there, there's this theme going through here about perseverance, that grit. And the reality is when teams like that go and deploy, grit often comes into play. But you make the team and you serve on the team. We're not going to talk about a lot of the missions that you, you, you went on. Maybe, well, I hope we're going to have you back to talk about some of those. But then you also became involved in crisis negotiation. How, how did that come about? So, yeah, I will just touch on that. The grit and perseverance are are critical. That HRT, I'll just touch on this. I, I'm not the strongest guy by far. I'm not the fastest guy. I'm not the most intelligent. I will never give up. And that's the kind of theme of the individuals there at HRT. And I, I say this team of extraordinary individuals, right? And I was just ordinary there. I truly, I was just average because I was in a team with extraordinary people. So it's a remarkable 
team to be a, a part of and to have that the guy to your left was a former seal the guy to right was a you know naval academy grad at force recon marine and i would have to you know talk slower and use hand signals when i talked to my <laughs> navy and marine corps friends but they were pretty smart no massive respect for my uh <laughs> i get it man. Other service colleagues <laughs> so i did i did eight years as an operator on hrt i deployed overseas numerous times and domestically numerous operations my first year, I was a sniper. I did not really enjoy that. I was not cut out for it. Patience level and tolerance to suffer through elements, you know, for hours and shifts on ends. I, I was not cut out to be a sniper. And I was just an average, probably below average sniper, to be honest. <laughs> and I was on one unit and Mike Kelly was on another unit. He was an assaulter on a different unit. He said, hey, Kyle, come to, to our unit. It was, again, a different color. They go by colors. And so after one year on the sniper, Mike and others I liked on the team uh, recruited me over and I came to the assault side. So I was a assaulter for the remaining you know, seven years. Probably highlights were overseas deploying with military special mission units uh, to Iraq and Afghanistan. We do 90 or 120 day uh, rotations. So truly being on the tip of the spear, my military, especially my brothers that I'd worked with before, you know, I had intimate knowledge of how the military functioned. Now being an attachment as an FBI agent, uh, it was a really unique, kind of incredible opportunity to be able to assist the military. We helped with it's called sensitive site exploitation, or SSE for short. We'd help collect evidence and help battlefield interrogation. Because back in the early start of the war, right after the Iraq war, FBI right has an investigator mindset, right? We attack criminal networks. We dismantle. We go after the leadership. We have very kind of structured ways we do that. Where the military is very good at, you know, kill, capture, individual missions but they weren't the best at looking at whole networks. And so that was what kind of the FBI investigator mindset brought. And we were able to go on target, right? The HRT personnel with our tactical experience, we could embed with tier one units and integrate, you know, near seamlessly do the similar backgrounds and training. So they wouldn't take even task for a regular task force would not just take a regular FBI agent on target with them, right? They have to be especially trained. And even then they would send guys home if you were not a good fit, or if there was a question of competence or even personality, tier one units are very quick as they should be to, you know, show you the door, say, thanks for showing up. But thankfully that never happened to me. <laughs> <laughs> what made the transition, if it was a transition to crisis negotiations? Yeah, you, you asked that and I didn't, didn't address it. It was a Christmas Eve mission. I was with my wife driving to the airport and we got notice, uh, I think it was Wyethville, a post office in uh, Southern Virginia. A man had taken the, several individuals hostage in there and, and maybe it was December 23rd. I had to get out of the car, or drive, turn back around. My wife dropped me off. She flew on to Hawaii for the family vacation. And that was kind of the straw that broke the camel's back. So I missed Christmas with the family and my wife said, hey, that's, that's enough. <laughs> and she, she never liked the risk aspect to the job. But I, I really, truly did not perceive it as that risky. I think officer on the street doing patrol is probably the riskiest law enforcement job out there, right? I always felt very confident with when we do HRT missions, right? We're so well-planned. We're so well-resourced. And I was with the baddest of the baddest men out there. So I knew since they take a loss, but we, we were going to win the fight no matter what. So I was very confident. I was not worried. I'm not trying to sound overconfident, but I was not worried. My time came, my time came. Uh, but wife didn't see it that way, of course, and she wanted me... To depart. So yeah, and the crisis negotiator role is more of a uh, not as risky, certainly not as risky, and a little more uh, better time at home with the family. I saw what they had done too to give credit, to like Vince Alfonso and Mark Thundercloud, Mark Flores, kind of three 
legends in the negotiation community. I saw firsthand when I was on HRT, the incredible kind of mental chess work and a mental chess game. These guys use the words and not weapons, right, to affect behavioral change and, and to get a successful outcome. And it was really incredible. They were like playing chess, like on a three-dimensional level, truly brilliant guys. And I respect and admired what they did. So I, I talked to the unit chief, guy named John Flood at the time. Hey, I'm, I'm ready for a break, you know, from the operational side. And he thankfully uh, welcomed me with, with open arms. And it's, it's good for the unit too, to have someone who has the tactical bona fides to be able to come in that negotiation side. Because that's really, I was able to be as like a bridge between kind of two disparate worlds. And I don't want to talk too much about that, but that's, I think most interesting things is I'm only one of a handful of people who was served in both HRTs as an operator and served in the crisis negotiation unit as a negotiator. Because it does kind of take a special mindset to be able to shift and yet still talk back and forth between both worlds and have that respect in both worlds to offer opinions, ideas, et cetera. So when did you make the transfer then? So it was going to be 2012, I believe. And, and the reason I ask that is because January 29th, 2013, uh, there was an incident that began in Midland City, Alabama. Can you kind of give us how that scenario started down in Alabama? Yes. Yeah, so the subject, and I even hate to say his name, but Mr. Dykes boarded a school bus that morning. He had previously cultivated a relationship with the bus driver, Mr. Charles Poland, and he had cleared some laurel brush on the side of his dirt road to make it easier for the bus to turn around. And then also he delivered a bag of vegetables, I think like carrots and broccoli to Mr. Poland. So Mr. Dykes is intentionally gratiating himself to the bus driver because he knew he was going to have this diabolical plan in the future to get on the bus. So sure enough, that morning when the kids are on the bus, he turns around, he sees Mr. Dykes, Mr. Poland stops the bus, opens the door. And Mr. Poland comes on. And actually, I believe it was the afternoon. Sorry, not the morning. He hands Mr. Poland a, a note, a handwritten note that Mr. Dykes had written, basically demanding the bus driver, Mr. Poland, pick two well-mannered, healthy children off the bus. No harm will come to them, but he is to give them, he is to select them, and then it will force the powers that be that will listen to Mr. Dykes, and then they will be set free. Uh, Mr. Poland is an incredibly brave individual. He has faced Mr. Dykes has a pistol, right? So he's facing down a pistol, and he refuses to pick or supply the children to Mr. Dykes. So this is the first of many heroic events which happens in Midland City that week is Poland's refusal in the face of grave danger and imminent death Poland says, I'm not giving you children off my bus. Yeah, the term hero is is thrown around a lot. But right. I mean, he said, I'm sorry, you're just going to have to shoot me. Yep. And he was he said, it's these children are my responsibility. And it's unbelievable the heroic efforts that he had. It was it's chilling. It, it is absolutely chilling. I'm glad you watched the, the video, obviously, because I, I show that video when I give this presentation. And, you know, it's so powerful and so moving to see that heroism literally right before your eyes. And a man who gave his life to protect those children. And yes, the hero word is thrown on way too much. It bothers me tremendously. But Charles Poland was a hero in every sense of the word. As I understand it, doing the research, that this bus had a wide range of age kids. You know, I, I live in a big school district, so we, we have elementary buses and we have high school buses. But it sounds like on this particular bus, it was a wide range. This guy, Mr. Poland, I mean, he stood his ground and he paid the price and no greater love, no greater love. Right. I'm in awe of people like that. Unfortunately, he did shoot him. He did shoot him. And he ends up taking 
uh, one kid from the bus. That kid, if my research is correct, was a, a young man by the name of Ethan Gilman, who at the time was five. Correct. He had some medical issues that required regular medication, didn't he? Yes. And it's interesting to note in that letter, Dykes asked for two healthy, well-mannered children with no issues. Ethan had form of Asperger's syndrome, form of autism, required medication three times a day. And Ethan had a special relationship with Mr. Poland. Ethan sat right behind him. So when Poland stepped on the bus and after he chose to kill Mr. Poland, uh, he just reached for the nearest child there was, and that was Ethan. So he grabs Ethan, he put over his shoulder. Oh, backing up though, when he shoots you know, four or five rounds into Mr. Poland, Actually, the first 911 call comes from the back of the bus. There was a 13 or 14-year-old kid. You talk about age ranges. Yeah, it was 5 to 14 at least. That was the first time that law enforcement was notified, hey, there's a man on the bus with a gun. And then the 911 operator hears the shots fired. That's a, that's a very difficult call to listen to as well because the operator knows that all those kids' you know, lives are on the line. 911, where's your emergency? Um, I don't know. We're on the bus and someone's trying to take our kids. Okay, where are you at? We're near Destiny Church. We're uh, down this dirt road. He has a gun. He has a gun? Yes, ma'am. Where's the guy with the gun now? He's at the bus door. He's at the bus door? Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. And what's the guy with the gun doing now? He's asking for kids. He's asking for kids? Yes, ma'am. Has he made it onto the bus? Yes, ma'am. He's on the bus. Very brave. You're doing good, okay? Thank you. Okay. Is he wearing like a dark shirt, light shirt? I don't know. You're too scared to look. I got you. What's he doing now, honey? He's screaming at the bus driver. Is he talking to the bus driver? Yes, ma'am. He's aiming the gun at the bus driver? Yes, ma'am. Oh my gosh, what's going on? The bus driver's dead. Do what? The bus driver's dead. The bus driver's dead. The bus driver's dead. Oh my gosh. Hang in there, baby. Hang in there. Just get down. Get down. What's he doing now, honey? He took a kid. He took a kid. He took a kid. He got a kid. So obviously, there's a lot more to discuss about this case. So what we decided to do is break it up into two episodes in order to give Kyle really a chance to talk in depth about how law enforcement responded to the events of the case. So Kyle's going to be back for part two of the Midland City, Alabama bunker hostage situation next Tuesday right here on Between the Lines. <laughs>